Well, church, you can turn to Exodus chapter 17 if you like in your copies of God's Word as we look to the story, Water from the Rock. Exodus chapter 17. Uh, I have really been enjoying going through the book of Exodus. You know, there's something about having to prepare to teach that uh, really makes your own Bible study uh, Rich and I am. Um, I'm thankful for the things that I've been able to see in God's Word, just preparing for this time together. So it's blessed me. I hope it is a blessing uh, to you. Exodus 17 is not uh, incredibly long, so why don't we just read it together all the way through and um, and see what the Lord might teach us from it? It begins this way. All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So as we're reading through narrative, this is kind of when the music begins to change, right? If you're watching a movie and the music kind of changes, there's a little bit of foreshadowing about what's getting ready to happen. There was no water. So how do we think the people of Israel are going to respond when they become uncomfortable. Well, how have they responded thus far? Not so hot. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So, Moses knows that the uh, flack he's getting is really not a statement about him. It's a statement about his people's relationship with God. And he rightly diagnoses the disease. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord. What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah, which which means testing and quarreling. Uh, And he did so because of the quarreling of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek, this is an interesting little segue. It seems almost as if in this one chapter, two completely different stories are being told. Okay? Really kind of sudden shifting of the gears, like when you're in your old gra- your grandpa's old truck and you know the, the clutch doesn't quite work like it used to, and there's a little bit of you know kind of jerking back and forth here. It seems abrupt. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So we've, we've gone from being thirsty to having people fight with us. Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill. Uh, with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top, uh, onto the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek 
prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and, and put it up under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. So this is interesting. At the end of God doing you know, some, some really good stuff, what is the natural reaction uh, of, uh, of what should be the natural reaction of the people? Is to remember the acts of God. Why? Because we're forgetful. Because we're forgetful. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, um, here's what we learn. In chapter 17, as I say, there, are, there really are kind of two scenes here. There's a story of the water from the rock. And then there's a story of, of um, Amalek and fighting with, with this nation that rises up against Israel. So at first glance, these appear to be two separate accounts. But upon a closer look, they, really, they teach a similar principle. And the Bible does this a lot. Whenever gospel writers, you see this in the gospels, and I'm really actually, I would ask for you to pray for me because I'm trying to, to discern. Uh, I don't think I can go wrong as long as I stay in the Bible. But where to preach next? We're, we're coming to a close very quickly in James. And I'm thinking about 1 Corinthians, thinking about the Gospel of John. These, these two, either one of them is going to be a commitment, right? So, you know, y'all are, y'all are bound uh, to, to, to one of them, and I'm bound to one of them for quite a time because they're, they're both rather long. But, um, but pray for me because um, I'm trying to figure out, should we go to the Gospels? Should we go to 1 Corinthians? But in the Gospels, we see this happening. You know, there will be a, a story about something that Jesus did, a miracle. And then right next to it, there will be another paragraph, and it seems like a completely different story. But they, they're shown to teach the same kind of principle, and that's what we see here. Uh, God inspired the Bible's writers to include similar stories back-to-back or nearby one another in order to emphasize a certain point. So here's our first point, though. Disunity leads to quarreling. Disunity among the people of God leads to quarreling. And as we see here in verse 2, it says, Why do you quarrel with me? Moses asked them. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So again we see... Another story of the people having a problem, of the people having a need, and instead of crying out to God, they cry out to Moses, right? And they don't even really cry out to him. They quarrel with him, and they, they, they go to this old, I don't know, kind of knee-jerk reaction of saying, it would, have been, it would have been better if you had just left us in slavery in Egypt. It doesn't make a bit of sense. They keep making the same mistake, Right? I don't know if you noticed this, but in our own lives, we tend to continue to make the same mistakes. And I would say that for all of us, we probably know right now what our struggles are, right? Not everybody struggles with everything all the time, but I know me. I've lived with me for quite a while now. 
And I know if I'm gonna if I'm gonna slide off into a ditch, I usually know which which ditch I tend to slide off into. And so these people are really struggling with trusting the Lord and their their sense of security. They, they they they're exposed. They're out here in the wilderness now. They don't have any water, and they're thinking to themselves, it would actually be a pretty sweet deal to go back to to Egypt and just to be slaves because at least then we had three squares a day. Something like that. Just give us some of the security. Give us that feeling of security, even if it means disobedience. I don't mind being disobedient to God as long as that's comfortable. I'll be disobedient. So, see the same old pattern of Israel's fickleness play out. Now, they're confronted with a new immediate need. Water seems pretty important, right? You can go without food for, you know, I don't know how many days they say, maybe a couple weeks uh, in a survival Scenario, but you can't go very long at all without water. Need water, maybe just a couple days or something like that. So, uh, confronted with a new immediate need, the people run not toward trusting God, but toward quarreling with one another. Moses bears the brunt of this, I guess because he's an easy target, right? He's a leader, he's close by, so they, they run to him. He discerns what's going on. He knows they're really not quarreling against them, against him. They are letting their own poor relationship with God play out, right? That's what happens when, when this quarreling takes place. And he asks them, why do you test the Lord? I would say many conflicts are just a different rendition of this spiritual problem. We, because we're sinners, sinners come together in marriages Sinners come together in churches. Sinners come together in homeowners associations. Sinners come together in, you know, I don't know, quilting clubs and, you know, baseball teams and all kinds of stuff. Sinners come together. And, and where sinner, wherever sinners come together, they tend to just let their, their sinful hearts kind of spill over onto other people. So what's happening here. Many different conflicts, many problems are just a, rend a di different rendition of this problem. But notice, the starting place for this quarreling is a lack of trust in God. The presence of a deeply felt need. And they don't handle it the right way. Friends, which of our appetites, which of our needs do we have that when we don't feel like they're getting met... Instead of responding in, in, in trust toward God, we're tempted to kind of go toward letting our heart just kind of bubble over. Often through our immediate needs and appetites, the enemy is able to gain a foothold in our life. It's, it's usually through something that we feel like we need or something that we really do need. And we try to get that need satisfied through some other vehicle other than Jesus, right? That's the essence of idolatry. That's the essence of sin. That's the essence of, um, of rebellion. Because they thirst, their physical need begins to alter their picture of who God is. Was well, that God... I knew that you provided us the manna in the wilderness, but today I'm not hungry. Today I'm thirsty. And so maybe you're different today than you used to be. That's how the thought process plays out. Satan will get a, a, a foothold in our lives through our appetites. Reminds me of a story somewhere of a, of a brother who sold his birthright 
because he was really hungry. You know? The enemy will use the things that we need in order to say, you know what? I know you need that. Why don't you try to get that need satisfied over here? It's quicker. It's fast. It's easy, right? He even tried to tempt Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth as if Jesus didn't already own them. So, how do we apply this? Well, outward division is always the result of inward spiritual problems. It's what we see in the people of Israel. It's what we remember from James just a couple of weeks ago. James 4.1. What causes fights and what causes quarrels? This word from Exodus, uh, did I just say Ephesians? I meant Exodus. One of these e-books. What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, you have passions, you have desires, you have needs. And they're at war within you. And if you don't discharge them in the right way, it will end up in, you'll end up in sin. So, we should be careful of which felt needs we have that can be exploited by the enemy. If Satan is going to come after you, which door is easiest in your life? I just ask you to ask yourself that, that, uh, that question in the quietness of your heart. Which door is most open most often in your life to the schemes of the devil? Because he will try to exploit that. As an aside, as watching out for our felt needs, I've always thought it would be cool to own a hat shop and call it felt needs. You know, like a, like a felt hat or something like that. I don't know. That was a terrible attempt at a joke. <laughs> You're a patient congregation. Water for now, water forever. If you look in verse 6, uh, the people get water from the rock. So God actually takes care of their immediate need, right? After they have their hearts bubble over in a little bit of rebellion. Water for now, water forever. It says this, and you shall strike the rock. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, friends, I'm hoping that by now y'all are developing a sense for how these shadows point toward something better. Has there ever been another rock that has been struck in the Bible? Maybe the, the rock of ages, you know. Has there ever been another rock that God struck in order that people can have water Forever. Living water, maybe. Yeah. It's a good picture. You shall strike the rock and water shall come of it, and the people will drink. See, God miraculously provides for his people at Horeb, which literally means dry or desolate, right? That's a good name. It's a good name for a place where there's no water. Dry. You know. Well, I was down at dry today and there wasn't any water down there. You know? Um there's a, you know, there's a, I was actually just talking with Ravon, and, and I, we both, he, he has lived here, and I know someone who's from Frostproof, Florida. <laughs> Wonder why they call it that. You know, so, um, God miraculously provides for his people here, but God provides for his people in such a way that sets us up for yet another Christ picture. We see yet another foretaste of the gospel, yet another picture Dark, dim, but we can see through it to see the better thing. God provided for the people's immediate need by striking the rock. And we should note there are other places in 
the Bible where God is pictured as a rock. Okay? See, I've included one of those, Jeremiah chapter 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So I'm, I'm sorry, that was not a picture of God as a rock. As God is a picture of water, of living water. Okay? And there's another one of these in Jeremiah 17. You can look at uh, perhaps later. But this sets us up to see John chapter 7. Sets us up to see the teaching of Jesus. Look at this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, yes, God provided for the immediate needs of the people in Exodus by giving them water. And this is a picture to show us that God intends to provide for the eternal needs, for the spiritual needs of all people by giving anyone who will come living waters through striking His very own Son. It says this in, in 1 Corinthians 10. I'll read, uh, I'll read this briefly. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. And so if you doubt whether, you know, kind of what I'm getting at is true, here's Paul saying that the rock is Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In the Old Testament, you see... God struck the rock to give the people water so that they could live for the day. In the New Testament, God struck the rock, Jesus Christ, so that the people could get water forever and would never thirst again. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So all of Scripture, friends, this is how we apply this. All of Scripture is Christocentric. It means, that means centered on Christ. This is yet another example of the Bible pointing toward Christ with just an Old Testament shadow. We see it. The New Testament. Uh, let's see the the New Testament. The, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. In other words, we see the Old Testament clearly when we read the New Testament. Um, and we see the New Testament in shadows when we read the Old Testament. This, th these books are, I mean, it, it's just, it's incredible when you, when you really read the Bible in this kind of way, how anyone could say that these are just random things put together. I mean, the, the Lord's hand is all over it across hundreds and hundreds of years and multiple human authors that God inspired. It has a consistency it has a consistency, and this thread goes all the way through it in a way that nobody could ever, nobody could ever cheat this. Like nobody could ever manufacture this unless God's hand was in it. Here's the last point. Victory comes. Victory comes 
when God's people are unified. Here's how we see these two things coming together. So, the first little scene, water from the rock, shows a picture of God's people disunified. It's not pleasing to God, but He in His grace provides for them in a way that they don't deserve. And then the second scene shows us about what happens when God's people are unified. When God's people are unified around who He is. Today we would say unified around the Bible because that's, that's how we understand who God is. It says this, when, when Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. And Aaron and Hur held up his hands. We see a picture of, of teamwork, of people who are on the same page, pulling in the same direction, unified around who God is. See, Joshua is down there fighting the battle. Moses is up here trying to obey God, keep his hands raised. And when he fails, he's got Aaron and Hur holding his hands up, believing God, believing what God has said. God has said that as long as your hands are up, we will prevail. So we're going to do whatever we can to help you obey. When you get weary, we're going to push you forward so that Joshua down there can win the battle. All of God's people falling right into place, doing exactly what they need to be doing. Joshua the warrior, Moses the leader, Aaron and Hur the the servants pushing in the same direction so that God can be glorified and the victory can be won. Friends, this is a picture of what the New Testament church ought to be. Pushing, pulling in the same direction, seeking to obey God. This is where both stories come together. In the first part of chapter 17, I'm just recapping here, the people are disunified, they're grumbling, they're questioning God, is taking root in their hearts. But in the second story, a great victory is achieved because God's people unify around who God is and they trust Him to win the battle. That's the point, but I want to leave you with a couple of scriptures just to reinforce this. Psalm 133. Psalm 133.1 says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life, forevermore. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, verse 11 says this. <clears throat> Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. I love that verb there. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And then Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll conclude with this one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? There is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all 
and in all. In other words, friends, unify because the God that we follow is a unified God. And He has one purpose and one plan for His church to see His glory magnified on the earth as the waters cover the seas. Would you pray with me? And then we'll respond together to the Word of God. Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it has an apt lesson for us each time we turn to it. God, I pray <clears throat> that we would see in the Old Testament the, the, the pictures of Jesus and it would be just so clear to us that our eyes would be open to them and we would give You praise and glory because Your, your Word is not just some disconnected assemblage of moral teachings that we can somehow stumble our way through. But really, God, they're telling one story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's one story about how a good and loving God sought to make sinful people like me and like all of us at peace with a holy and righteous God. Lord, it should not be. It should not be that we are able to come into your presence, but it is possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I pray that we uh, would praise you because we have been redeemed by that very love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.